Well, we have been in a series called Disciplines of a Godly Life. And what we're, what we're striving to understand and striving to grapple with is what does it look like for us to become more like Christ? What does it look like for us to take those godly principles and those godly realities that we see in Scripture and apply them to our life in such a way where they're not just something we do periodically, but they're something we do in repetition over and over and over again so that it almost becomes instinctual for us. Disciplines are not those things you just do every once in a while. Disciplines are those things you do without even thinking about them because that's just how it is. They've moved from just a a decision you make to an instinct that now is a part of your daily life. And so we're looking at what it looks like to create these disciplines of a godly life. And this morning, we're going to be talking about the discipline of devotion. The discipline of devotion. And if I could define it one way, it would be this. It is devotion or faithfulness to some cause or person. It's commitment. It's dedication, loyalty, and zeal. If you have a pen, write that down. Devotion is devotion or faithfulness to a cause or person. It's commitment. It's dedication. It's loyalty. And it's zeal. It's something that affects the way that you live. It affects the way that you think. It's almost like a a movement or a person has this anchor in your heart and whenever it comes up in conversation or you think about it, it directs the way that you behave. It commands your loyalty. You're willing to give up time. If my wife has a flat tire on the side of the road, I'm gonna go out and stop everything I'm doing. I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna try to fix that tire or I'm gonna call someone to go fix it for her, although I wanna do it because I get more brownie points that way, right? But like there's something, there's a loyalty you have in relation to other things or other people where when they're in need or when you're in need, you'll help them or they'll help you. It, it, It modifies and changes the way you behave, It sort of sets the trajectory of your life. And so when we talk about devotion today, we're going to talk about what does it look like to have the God version of devotion, where he is the hook in our life so that as we live, we we look at ourselves in light of what he has done and what he is doing and wants to do in our life, where he's the one directing the path, where he's the one who's calling the shots, and we are submitted to him, not the other way around. And so what I want to do to start is I want to talk about slogans. We live in a world that's very consumer-driven, and so we have companies every single day that are knocking on the doors of our mind and our heart, and they're trying to get in. And the reason why these companies come up with these slogans is because they know if they can give you this quippy little fun saying, you'll remember them, and then when lunchtime comes around, you're more likely to give your loyalty and dedication to, to them rather than somebody else. And so what we're going to do, I need some crowd interaction. It's the 11 I know you guys, you know, you slept in a little bit, so maybe you're a little more groggy. I know that's not the case. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you, or I'm going to say a slogan, and I want you to tell me what company it's from. So when I go, ba-da-ba-ba-ba, McDonald's, correct. You guys are on your A game today, all right? Uh, the next one is, uh, it's finger licking good. KFC, no, it's actually heart failure, but KFC was close, okay? Uh, so uh, the next one I want to have, it's not actually a slogan, it's more of a sound. All right, some, there's some younger people, college students, that are like getting ready to stand up and, you know, go get a taco, right? Because we know when you hear that bell, it's Taco Bell, that means it's taco time, 
All right, and these, what these companies are doing, just like you can sit in church right now and yell at me, this is McDonald's, KFC, right, Taco Bell, they've put this slogan in your head so that at the right time, when you hear it, you're thinking, boy, Mike, when, when this pastor's done, it might be time for us to go get some tacos, right? Like, I want some Taco Bell. It, it, it sits in the recesses of your brain, and at the right moment, when you need it the most, it comes to the forefront, and instead of going to Taco John's, which there's nothing wrong with, amen, okay? Instead of going over there and giving your loyalty to another company and giving your affection to another uh, food and the cheap nacho sauce or the meat that they put on their, their tacos, instead of going over there for, for that taco, you'll go to Taco Bell. Instead of going to Wendy's for the burger, you go to McDonald's. What they're trying to do is implant in your mind a slogan that builds loyalty to their brand so that you will not forget them at lunchtime. The key to these slogans are so you don't forget the reality of what their food tastes like, of what of the, the price and the, the cost and, and how cheap it might be and how you could save money. All these things come to the forefront when you hear the slogan. It's what they use to stay in your brain. This is how they build loyalty and this is how they get your devotion. And so as we go to our text this morning, we're going to read from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. If you have a Bible, open there now. Uh, it's one of the first uh, five books uh, in the Old Testament. So just start at Genesis. Go at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. And this text is one of the centerpiece texts of the Jewish faith. This is actually one of the centerpiece texts of the Christian faith. And it's called the Shema. Write that down, the Shema, S-H-E-M-A. And what Shema means is hear or listen. And so as we go to the text today, this is what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is the slogan of the Jewish people. Now what we need to understand and unpack is why this text is given. This text is given to a people that's in a very different situation than you or I are in today. And so what we need to do is put ourselves in their shoes to understand why this slogan matters so much. The people of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy, the, the writer is preparing them to go into the promised land, the land that God had promised to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This represents almost like the good life. This is where they're going to finally have peace. This generation of Israelite wanderers have been in the wilderness for 40 years. All they've known is desert and rocks, pain and suffering. All they've known and, and all they've ever received in terms of food was that which God literally would provide for them through quail and the dew in the morning and manna. So every single meal, they could do nothing to provide for themselves except for trust in God. But the irony of this story is that the generation that's going into the promise of God, that's going in to receive the blessing, this generation watched their parents leave slavery. This is the generation that heard the stories told to them day after day about how they used to live in Egypt and they were enslaved by the Pharaoh and they were forced into these labor camps and they were forced to do these things against their will and, and, and the, the Pharaoh took the firstborns and he threw them in the river and he brought destruction upon our people. 
And they told the stories of how they went from captivity and now they shifted to freedom. But instead of moving into the promise of God, they get to the land and they actually fail. They fall short. They don't believe that the God who set them free back in Egypt was the God that could carry them into the promised land. They didn't trust God. They didn't have loyalty to God. They had forgotten the things that God had done back in Egypt. They forgot the miracles. They forgot the 10 plagues where God poured out his judgment on their captors so they could go free. They had forgotten all about it. And instead of trusting in the God who provided back then, the God who would provide in the future, all of a sudden their hearts were full of doubt. And they said, you know what? We don't trust this God. The land is full of giants and we're not strong enough to defeat them. And so a whole generation that watched God do miracle after miracle after miracle, they don't enter into the promise that God has because of their unbelief. And so here now, a new generation, a new generation is going to enter into the promise of God, and God sets them up with this slogan. Hear, O Israel, Shema, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you will love this God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength. See, here's what God knows about you and me. Here's what God knows about the Israelites, the generation that would go into the land and the generation that failed. He knows that he can do everything and then some to provide the promises that he has for us. He can do miracles, he can do signs and wonders, but you and I are prone to what? We're prone to wander. We're prone to forget the things that God has done in the past. And when we forget those things, we wander away from the plan that God has for us. We end up being like a fish whose desire it is to explore the great lands beyond. And they think, if I can just get out of the water and onto the land, then I'd be free. What's going to happen to the fish? The fish will surely die. And God knows this. He knows that when we don't follow his plan, we're nothing more than a fish flopping on dry ground, trying to find freedom that we'll never obtain. And so he comes to his people. He's speaking to us today, and he's saying, Hear, O new life, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so the first point I want to give to you today today, is listen. Shema literally means listen. Hear, O Israel. Listen, O Israel. Israel. And if you know anything about our culture, today everybody has an opinion and everybody is trying to get your attention. I know for a fact there's at least three companies that has your attention, McDonald's, KFC, and Taco Bell. But there are, everybody is trying to get your attention. Everybody is making noise in your life. And so I want to talk about three things that are in your head right now. The first thing is this, it's the busyness overload. The busyness overload. Life is busy. I'm getting ready to go on a trip, and I have a seven-year-old, four-year-old, and a month-and-a-half-year-old, and, and we're going to travel 22 hours, right? I've already shared this with you, right? That's a busy life. If you ask my wife how busy her life is right now, she'll say it's not that busy, but it's consumed with the noise of our one-and-a-half-month-old child. He won't let her put her, him down. He's just always attached to her, and so she's carrying this thing around, and he's always making noise, and he's always uh, uh, zapping her energy and, 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 and taking her, her resources. He's, he's taking all of that stuff. 
And then on top of that, we got two other kids and we're running them around to different things and we're setting up appointments because they're not going to school right now. We want them hanging out with friends and we want to take them to a park, right? And in your life, you're, maybe you're taking your kids to the water park or you're taking them to a levity. All of a sudden, because school's not in anymore, you're all over the place, amen? And you're doing any and everything to stay above the water and to keep your head in a place, but everybody's vying for your attention, and then on top of that, you got the bills you got to pay, and you got to go to work, and you got to make the money, and you got to come home. And when you come home, your wife is there with the kids, and, and she's looking at you begging for help without having to say it. And so you take the kid, right? This, maybe this is my own therapy that I'm talking about now, okay? But that's the reality of life. It's busy, and sometimes it can be an overload. But on top of the busyness overload, there's also the information overload, I was doing some research, and, and how many of you guys listen to podcasts? I listen to about four or five throughout the week. There's an information overload in our culture and in our community. You can go on YouTube and find information for any and everything. There's over 2 million podcasts. Over 750,000 of them are active, meaning they're uploading on a regular basis. And all of them are sharing their opinions. All of them are doing information or are, are doing interviews in, in order to get information from, from this person into your brain. It's more noise. And oftentimes in our culture, especially if you watch the news, you're saying, well, what can I trust? What can I trust? And so now there's this added layer of not only are you trying to find uh, uh, meaningful information, but you're trying to find true information. And you don't know where to look because everybody's saying they're true. And so now the noise just increases all the more. But on top of the information overload, there's also the entertainment overload. I did some research again on some of the streaming services, and I want to read to you how many people are subscribed to, I think, the top 10 streaming services. Coming in last place is Peacock with 9 million viewers, Apple TV, 20 million, Discovery Plus, 22 million, Hulu has 45.3 million, Paramount, 56 million, HBO Max, 73.8 million, Disney Plus, 129.8 million, Amazon Prime, over 200 million subscribers, and the king of all of them is Netflix with 221.8 million. I'm sweating after that one, whew, right? But there's an entertainment overload. We go and we binge these series, and I'm, I do the same thing. And we're waiting for the next show to come out so we can give our attention and our affection to that. What's happening in your mind? That noise is getting deep-seated in your brain. It's working its way into the dark recesses of your memory so that when you're bored with something, what do you do? You fill it with what? With your Netflix. You fill it with your Hulu you fill it with another podcast. You have a question about something and so you, you turn on the next podcast that you think is gonna address that question the way you think it needs to be addressed. All of a sudden there's noise all over our mind. And in the midst of all of this, God is shouting from the rooftop, hear O new life, shema new life. Listen to these words of mine. You're chasing all these things. Now, are podcasts bad? Are, are subscriptions bad? Of course not. This is not meant to be a hit piece, right, on Netflix or anything like that. But what it's meant to be is a reminder that there is all sorts of noise in our life. And if we don't stop to learn, to listen, in the midst of all the noise, what will happen is we will get swept 
away. And instead of following the slogans that God has given to us, instead of letting the Shema sink deep into our mind and into our heart, we're going to chase after things and make other things that lover that we pursue over and above God. And God then becomes nothing more than maybe another streaming service. I'm going to tune in, God, when I go to church this Sunday. I'm going to tune in when I take my kids to Wednesday night services. I'm going to tune in when I absolutely have to, but then when I'm done tuning in and streaming your little service, I'm going to move on to the next thing. How many of you, when you get bored, I was talking about this with someone this week. How many of you, when you get bored, you automatically think, I have to fill it with something? I was talking to somebody this week, and I'm like, man, I feel like we've forgot what it means to just be bored and, and to allow ourselves to sit and be creative and think and, 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 and just just be, as opposed to always having something telling us what to think and telling us what to do and telling us what's going to entertain us and telling us what's going to fulfill us. It's like we've forgotten how to be bored and just be. The Shema is meant to be that thing that brings us back to the center. We have to learn to listen. We have to learn to listen to the right authority. Otherwise, we'll get swept away in the noise. Deuteronomy 26 you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy 26, verses 16 through 17. This Hebrew word, Shema, is a very unique word because it doesn't just mean listen. Verse 16 of Deuteronomy 26 says this, This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and you will obey his voice. Now I'm setting you up here, but what is that, what do you think the word obey is in Hebrew? It's Shema. The Hebrew language, the Hebrew words, they don't have a word that describes obedience like we do. Inherent in the listening, inherent in the Shema to the Hebrew people, the people that are getting ready to go into the promises of God, inherent in this idea of listening is this automatic obedience. The two come together. It's a package deal. You don't just listen. You listen and you obey. You do. See, I don't know about you, but for me, I don't like this. This is something that goes against my hyper-individualized self. This is something that makes me uncomfortable because here's what I like to do. I like to, and you can kind of travel along this journey with me and see if this is you. I like to listen to things. I like to be open-minded about things. I like to hear the truth, but then what I do is I dissect it and say, okay, what is it that I can actually apply to my life? What's actually good here? And so I listen, but then I evaluate. I listen, I evaluate, and then I determine what's right for me and what's not right for me. I do this all the time. I do this with my podcasts. I do this within my entertainment. You just ask my wife. I take it, I analyze, and then I make a decision as to what it is that I should actually do. Is this going to help me become more disciplined? Then yes, I'm going to take that over here, but this, this isn't over here, and so I'm not going to take that. And what I end up doing, here, here's the irony, what I end up doing with my information is I pick and choose and I create for myself the reality I want to live in. I build a framework for myself of reality the way I think it should be. And what I'm doing there, there's a subtle shift that's happening. What I've done is I've taken God out of the driver's seat and I've put myself there instead. 
So instead of letting God and, and, and his word be the foundation of my life and the decisions that I make, now there's nothing wrong with supplemental material and you, you should be frugal with what you let into your mind. But if, if God's word becomes just like another thing, where you read the scriptures and you say, I don't like this, this makes me uncomfortable, therefore there's either something wrong in what I'm reading or it doesn't really apply to me. If that's the way that we handle scripture, then guess what? All we're doing is putting ourselves in God's spot. We're putting ourselves in his spot and we're forgetting, we're forgetting everything that he did from the scriptures, but also we forget the things that he's done in our life. God is calling us this morning to listen and obey. Are you putting yourself in a position where you're listening to God? Because if he is God and you are not, then whatever he says goes. Whatever he says is the thing that should be directing and guiding your life. And when you don't know what decision you should make, because maybe the scriptures don't talk about it, the scripture still is the undergirding principle and reality that should shape your decisions. The question then is how does scripture apply to this decision? What we do is we put ourselves in God's place. We want to listen, but we don't always want to do and what we do is we make ourselves God and we chase after other things that think, we think will fulfill us and make us happy. And in the process, we forget about God. The second thing, the second thing this morning that I want to give to you, the first one is listen and the second one is love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. It goes on in verse six to say, and these words that I command you today, they shall be on your heart. What that means is they go to the very core of who you are. In the Hebrew mind, the heart was the centerpiece. For us today, it's the mind. But in their culture, the centerpiece was the heart. This was the source of your life. Just like the heart pumps out blood to every part of your body, so your spiritual heart is this thing that feeds everything inside of you and it transforms you and changes you and it gives you the life that you lead. But that Hebrew word for love, it, it, it's aheva. It's aheva and it literally means it's a decision or wholehearted devotion to another person. What I love about this text is it says, uh, you know, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That word ekad, it means one. It's like it's, it's, there's, there's just this oneness to God that can never be torn apart. It's the same word used in Genesis 2 to describe what happens when a man and a woman are joined together. When there's two people that have this deep aheva love, they're joined together at the deepest level possible. The two become ekad, they become one. But what happens in those kind of relationships? The reason they're so powerful is because the love they share create an environment of trust that cannot be broken. Even when one makes a mistake, even when one does something wrong, when there's this aheva love at the centerpiece of a relationship, it binds people together in ways that are almost beyond our comprehension. God is calling us to have an aheva love for him. A love of, and, and devotion that consumes our entire being. It flows from the spiritual heart into the rest of our body. It affects the way that we think. It affects the way that we look at the world. It affects the way we interact with other people. Because God knows if the heart is off, if the heart is off, eventually it will lead to death. 
If you have a problem with the heart, if you eat too much KFC chicken, amen, if you have a problem with the heart and it goes unchecked, you can be doing fine for years and years and years, and then all of a sudden in a moment, if you don't get your screening, go get your screening, people. If you don't get your screening, then in a moment, your life can be over. When the heart is bad, over time, it leads to destruction. God knows this, and he knows that we were created to have him at the very center of our existence, and when we don't, we're nothing more than a fish trying to jump out of the water. We're nothing more than a person who has a heart problem that eventually one day will destroy us, and God is trying to wake us up and say, Micah, listen, new life, listen. If you want to achieve things in your life, if you want to have the life that continues on both now and to eternity, Listen to these words. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. It's loving God with everything inside of you. So listen, love, the last one is repeat. Start from the beginning. Listen, love, repeat. What I love about the scriptures is it's built upon this text. The the apostle Paul the great missionary of the early church, three different times in his letters he's going to reference the Shema. In 1 Corinthians 8, he's gonna talk about it. In 1 Timothy 2, in Ephesians 4, Paul is gonna use the Shema to undergird his arguments as to why God is faithful and he will keep his promises. In fact, it wasn't just Paul. Jesus himself, when asked what the greatest commandment is, he references the Shema. He says, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. What Jesus, the Apostle Paul, is doing and what the early church did is they took this ancient wisdom, this ancient piece of advice, this ancient truth that God gave the people of Israel thousands of years ago, and they're bringing it back, and they're repeating these phrases over and over again so that they would never forget the reality of their faith. They would never forget what God had done for them because if you forget what God had done for you back there, you won't believe and have the faith that he can do something for you in the future. So Jesus does this. Paul does this. When when a, a, a Jewish boy was of age and he could begin to speak, the first thing they would teach him to speak was the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you'll love him with everything inside of you. In the mornings, Jewish people still to this day, they'll wake up in the morning and the first thing out of their mouth will be the Shema. When they go down, when they lay down for bed, the last thing out of their mouth will be the Shema. They'll repeat the slogan of God over and over again. When when they pass on and, and they're doing the funeral, the last thing that's said of the funeral, the capstone of their life, everything that they represent, guess what they say? The Shema. We're here to celebrate the life of Micah. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love him with everything inside of you. This is something these people would repeat over and over and over again. This was not something they just did once a week or or once a month. This is something they took with them everywhere they went. If they went away for the weekend, the Shema was there with them. If they were out on a boat, the Shema was there with them. They repeated this constantly. And what I think God is doing here is he's calling us to have a sacred memory. He's calling us to have a memory of those things in our life which are esteemed as holy. They're things that you don't joke about. 
There are things that you are, are careful how you speak in because you know when you begin to think and dwell on these things, it represents holy ground. It represents those moments in your life where God did something when there was no other way. This is what God wants for the Israelites. He wants them to repeat this so they would never forget. When they go into the land that God had for them, he wants them to remember. Remember what happened to your forefathers. Remember when they were in Egypt and they were enslaved. Remember when I sent the, the blood into the river. Remember when I sent the locusts. Remember when I sent the angel of death. Remember when I poured out my judgment on that nation so you could be free. So that when you face difficulties in the times to come. When you wake up in the morning and you don't know what's going to happen next and maybe you lost your job or maybe your kid is sick or maybe you just got a terminal illness diagnosis and you're thinking to yourself, God, I don't know what you're going to do next. God wants to create in you a sacred memory so you never forget his faithfulness. So in the moments when you doubt them the most, in the morning you wake up and you say, even with a trembling voice, even with the voice full of fear and uncertainty, you say, here, new life. Hear Micah, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and he's calling me to love him with my entire being. The promises of God are sure. God is faithful and he's just. And what he's reminding these people of every single day is you can trust me. God is working into us a sacred memory. Deuteronomy 6, 7 through 9, it goes on and says this, You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gate. The Shema was meant to be everywhere. This slogan was meant to literally be everywhere. They use this sort of metaphorical language. Scholars aren't sure if this was meant to be taken literally or if it was just meant to be uh, love God everywhere you go. But the way it describes it is this is a truth that you take and you transfer it to your children. You teach them the ways of the Shema. You teach them the ways of God's holy law so that it will go well with them. So that the promise will transfer from generation to generation. You're, you're to take the Shema and you're to bind them and write them on your wrists. You're to bind them as a frontlet between your eyes. Later traditions would actually create boxes that they would strap on their head and their wrists called phylacteries where they would write these scriptures down and put them in these boxes. You're to write them on the doorposts of your home so that when you go out, when you leave the private and you enter into the public, you see the faithfulness of God and you take him everywhere you go. You take him in your going and you take him in your coming. When you come home at night and you're tired from work and your kids, you know, honestly, and your kids are just being annoying and they jump on top of you and they want your attention, and they want your affection, you're meant to walk through the door, not with the difficulties of the day, although you carry them, you're meant to see here, oh Micah, don't you forget that the Lord God is one and we worship him and we love him with everything in our being. So take that love, take that ahavah and give it to others. It's something you take with you everywhere you go, it's something you repeat every single day. There's this guy downtown, his name is uh, Thomas Dundon. You guys have a guy in your life or a lady in your life who you'll just be having a normal conversation, then all of a sudden they just drop this piece of wisdom that like makes you stop and think because you're like, I was not ready for that. 
right? Like, like we were just talking about the NBA finals and all of a sudden, bam, I can't think straight because you just blew my mind with some piece of wisdom. He's this guy and he says this about discipline. He says this about practice and about repetition. He says, you don't practice until you get it right. You practice until you can't get it wrong anymore. This is what makes it an instinct. This is what makes it a discipline. It's not just to make it so the wrong things in your life you stop doing, now you can do the right thing. It's so that you live in the right thing for so long, you don't even remember how to do the wrong thing anymore. You're so ingrained with the scriptures that all of a sudden you don't know how to think without it anymore. Every time you watch a movie, it's like there's these verses that are running through your head. Every time you're having a conversation with somebody at work, there are these verses that are running through your head because they meant life to you because something happened in your life back here and all of a sudden someone's telling you a story and it's like, man, I've experienced that. And I came out of that slavery and I moved into life. Let me tell you about Jesus. It's something you wear on you. It's something you take everywhere you go. It's meant to be repeated over and over and over again. God wants to instill in us a sacred memory. The enemy of devotion is forgetfulness. When we forget God's story, we get lost in our own. When we forget God's story, we get lost in our own. And what happens then is we become very prideful. When we get so consumed with our own story and our own drama and the drama that's happening around us, it's something that we'll, we get fixated on and then we get consumed by it. We get absolutely consumed. Why? Because we've gotten lost in our own story rather than the story of God. I want to read to you another verse. It comes from Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 12. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God knows what happens when we forget. I want you to write this next point down. This is gonna be the hardest point of the message. The next point I wanna give to you is this. God's promise is built upon his judgment. God's promise is built upon his judgment. Read those verses again. What is happening here? God is saying, I'm gonna take you into a land that I'm gonna give to you. And I'm gonna give you homes that you did not build. I'm gonna give you food that you did not harvest. I'm gonna give you cisterns and waters from wells that you did not dig. I'm gonna give you vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. Here's the reality of what God is about to do. God is about to use the Israelite nation to pour out judgment on the Canaanites. There is a people that occupies the land. There is a people where that is their homes. They've built their home. They've worked hard. They've done everything they can to provide for themselves and their families. But God has given them over to the lust of their flesh. In other parts of the Bible, it says that God allowed the nation of Israel to wander in the wilderness for 40 years because the, the sins of the people of Canaan were not where God could then judge them. So after 40 years, God looks at these people and he says, okay, they are ripe for judgment. It is now just for me to send the Israelites in and take them out. There's something in me that does not like that. There's something in me, and it should be in you too, where we say, that's not fair. That's not fair. The Israelites are gonna go into this land and they're gonna get homes they did not build. 
they're not going to do any of the work. They're going to have to go and they're going to displace whole families. They're going to displace an entire people group and there's going to be war and there's going to be killing. There's going to be pain and there's going to be suffering. But God's promise, as we see from the text, his promise is built upon his judgment. And what we see in Scripture, this is a really hard reality, but it's one if we miss this, we miss the glory of the gospel. There's a hard reality with human existence, and that's this. Nations come and nations go. People come and people go. The Canaanites are judged for their wickedness. God will take the labor of their work and he's going to give it to another nation. He's going to give it to another people group and he's going to be just in doing it. But when you look at the Israelite story, you realize really soon that there's nothing special about them. God gave it to them because of a promise, but Israel's going to lose it some three, four, five times in their history where another nation is going to be used by God to judge his own people because they had forgotten what he had done. And every time God does it, in our mind we think that's not fair, but in God's heart, he's being perfectly and faithfully just. Why? Because human beings have this thing in our heart called sin, and it makes us forget who God is, and instead of following after him and letting him be the life that leads us and sustains us, we're like a fish that's trying to swim on the land. And God uses this judgment. He uses this in your life and in my life. Do you know why? Because we look at the Canaanites and we see a people that are guilty. We look at the Israelites and in in two books when we get to Judges, there's going to be people that are going to come and they're going to conquer their land and there's just going to be this back and forth. Because no person is innocent before God. God uses his judgment to build his promise. Why doesn't it happen to you and me? Number one, it can. But why doesn't it happen today? You know why? Because there was a man, Jesus. He came to earth 2,000 years ago. And what did he do? He lived the perfect life. He performed the works that we could not perform ourselves. He made literally a home for us that we could never make for ourselves. He dug a well of life that we could never dig ourselves. And he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me and I'm going to give you the, the, the water of life. What does he say to the woman at the well? He gives her the water of life. He is the sister and he provides the work that we desperately need and without it, we face judgment. We're gonna be no better off than the Canaanites. We're gonna be no better off than the Israelites. Jesus lives the life we could not live and he goes to a cross and there he dies. And for the first time in human history, we see a man who was truly innocent die. For the first time in human history, we can look at somebody and say that their death was unjustified. They had never sinned. They've never done anything wrong. God, if there was any person who did not deserve your judgment, it was the son. It was your son. And yet God poured out his judgment on the son so that you and I could see the cross and we can realize I'm not the one who's supposed to be God. He is. And he ahavad me so much. He loved me so much that he would send his son to die for me. That's a love I trust. That's a love you can take to the bank and know that he's never going to leave you or forsake you. That no matter what you go through in your life, he's always going to be there because he loves you and he cares for you. Even when you were at your worst, he died for you. He gave himself for you. The cross represents that place where Jesus screams to us, listen. 
Listen to my words. He was forsaken so we could be accepted. His works are now given to us as the innocent lamb who was slain. We now have those works. So when God looks at us, he doesn't just see the broken, flawed Micah. He sees the righteousness of Christ covering me. And what he calls us to do today is to come to him in faith and repentance, saying, Jesus, I'm not good enough on my own. I need you this morning. No more of this, look at me, look how successful I am, look how I got my stuff together. No more of that, Jesus, I'm broken, I need you this morning. I need you in the dark recesses of my heart so that I can be more like you. This is where you start to build your sacred memory. When you remember what Christ did, it helps you move into the future with faith and certainty, knowing that if he, was, if he would do that for me back then, he's gonna do it for me today. So that no matter what I walk through, He's there. This is how we're going to close. I want to give you four things to build your sacred memory. We're going to go through these quick. The first one is learn to listen. And this starts through prayer and devotions. It's setting aside time where God can impart to you where you're there just to listen and do the things that he is calling you to do. He's the authority you can trust. You don't have to question. He's giving you his word. Will you sit and will you listen? I have a guy downtown. His name's Christian. Uh, I was sharing with him just some of the stuff for the message. He needed some details for his job. And he was like, man, that's really convicting. I don't really do that. And I was like, man, you know, yeah, it is convicting. I'm always not the best at that either. And so what we decided to do is, like, we're just going to, you know, go to the Bible app plan. And we're going to read through the book of Proverbs together. And when we see each other and get together, we're going to talk about it in the daily stuff of life. We're not just going to have this five minutes where we sit and talk and then go about our day. It's going to be just in passing. It's just going to be, this is what I've been thinking about this week. So I'd encourage you, find time to have those kind of devotions and find someone, find someone who you can share that with. Learn to listen to what God is speaking. The second one is repentance. Learning to walk in repentance, I think, is the key to building a sacred memory. It's keeping Christ at the forefront. It's saying, I'm not good enough, Jesus. I need you to cover my sin. Repentance is number two. The third one is scripture proclamation. Are you speaking scripture over your life? The Shema was meant to be said out loud. Are you speaking scripture over your life? Are you speaking scripture over your children's life? And that goes hand in hand with our, our last point. Teach your children. Diligently teach them the things of God. You know what I'm doing with my kids this week? I'm literally teaching them the Shema. Hear, O Elsie, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you, will, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, or with all your strength. Teach that to your children. Teach that to yourself. Memorize that. Let that sink deep into your mind. Get the slogan of God from the book to the brain. Teach your children these truths. Allow the ancient wisdom into your daily routine. And the last thing I want to encourage you with is this. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. I'd encourage you guys to fill out your connection cards. If you don't have a relationship with Christ and you're saying, man, I'm going to face that judgment one day. I'm going to face the judgment of God, and I'm not really ready for that right now. And you're saying, I want to step into the promises of God. If that's you, fill that out on your connection card. One of the pastors will reach out to you uh, throughout this next week, and we'll talk with you about what the next steps look like for you. But will you listen and obey what God is speaking to you? You can drop those connection cards off at starting point. You can put them in the box uh, on the way out where the tithes and offerings go. 
Um, but that's, that's what I'm going to ask to be your action step, are those four principles, but then filling out that connection card so we can begin to have the relationship with the body of Christ that we all need in our life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the Shema and the slogan that you have given to us. Lord, and that we would listen to your word. Hear, O new life, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Lord, and let us love you and let us worship you with our entire being. Let us take you to our job. Let us take your truths to our children and to our spouse. Let, them take, let us take those truths to our parents and to our friends. Lord, that in our coming and in our going, we would be saturated with your word and with your truth. So we pray that you would transform us. Build in us this discipline of devotion, we pray. In your name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray this message connected with you, and we hope it gave you another way to connect with Jesus and your New Life family. For more ways to get plugged in here at New Life, you can visit our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.